Hey, hey, ladies and gentlemen, I am delighted to say that today we are joined by positive psychologist Caroline Adams Miller. Caroline is one of the world's leading research-backed goal-setting experts, having graduated from Harvard with a magna cum laude. Caroline is a best-selling author with books such as Get In Grit, Creating Your Best Life, and her book, My Name is Caroline, that documents Caroline's journey with recovery, has been credited with deeply impacting thousands of lives, as it is one of the first books ever made that documented an individual's struggle with bulimia. In this episode, you are going to learn all about Caroline's personal battles with living in a dysfunctional home environment, her struggles with bulimia that she kept secrets for many, many years. You're going to learn about goal setting. You're going to learn about building positive self-esteem, all about this hugely new concept of grit, and also the goodies such as Caroline's morning rituals, her favorite books, case studies, and also her advice for women on breaking through the glass ceiling. This is one episode, guys, that you do not want to miss. So without any further ado, Caroline Adams-Miller, welcome to the Freedom Pact. So Caroline, so your book is titled Get In Grit, the evidence-based approach to cultivating passion, perseverance, and purpose. So I think that a good place to start the call is if we begin very early on into your life. Where did your first experiences with grit begin? Great question. Um, thank you for having me, and thank you for wanting to talk about such an important topic, particularly right now, given what the state the world's in. Um, but I believe the first realization I had, without knowing that the word was grit, that um, grit really mattered when it came to powerfully important goals that are important to you, not, not anyone else. Um, was when I overcame bulimia back in 1984, uh, began my recovery, and that was back at a time when literally nobody knew anybody who had recovered from it, um, and I became very, very fortunate to start my recovery in, in Baltimore, Maryland, where there were role models um, who actually said sentences like, I'm overcoming bulimia one day at a time. So. I had never heard anybody say anything remotely hopeful about an eating disorder, let alone talk about it publicly in front of other human beings. So um, that was when I had hope that I could overcome this horrible, horrible thing that had consumed my life for so long. And once I did overcome it and I stayed in recovery and have stayed in recovery for 30-some years without any you know, relapse, that's when I really became aware that it took a very special quality to do that and now I have the word grit from my work in positive psychology so I would have to go back to 1984 and say I didn't know what it was but I realized that you could grow that quality if necessary hmm. so you, you've been extremely open and, and vulnerable about your battles with bulimia and um, I think we stand, uh, found a study which may or may not be true that said you started dieting at 8 years old is that correct? I th yeah, I mean, you know, that's the normal age when girls start to hate their bodies. I hate to say it, but, you know, puberty's gotten even younger than, than when I was um, a young girl. But that's a pretty typical um, 
statistic is that girls begin to become aware of the fact that their size, their body, their weight is commented on by the media, by boys, by men, and that it's up for scrutiny. And I think that's when Carol Gilligan, a very famous sociologist, um, came up with these findings about 30 years ago that girls lose their voices around that age and they stop being as confident as they were as, as younger girls and um, unfortunately it all coalesces into some terrible self-hatred and self-mutilation and self-destru- you know, self-destructive dieting and I was just one of millions of victims who um, found that eating disorders were the way to, to deal with the scrutiny around my body. So Caroline, I think um, what we found amazing was that when we researched into your life, we just found it so remarkable that looking in from the outset, it seemed as if everything was going so perfectly. You noted as being an extremely competent swimmer. You graduated obviously with a magna cum laude from Harvard and you were even married at such a young age. All those things are typical metrics of say a successful life at such a young age you seem to have accomplished so much but what was going through your mind at that time did you feel successful i would say that outwardly i did have all the trappings of success meaning um you know a home where there was you know a roof over my head there was food on the table there were exclusive private schools in our country private means you pay money <laughs> um <laughs> and you have to like take exams to get in so i had I had those bumper sticker virtues is what I called them, but I also had um, a very difficult home life, and so there was a a relentlessness to the criticism that I endured from my mother in particular, who I think now we would diagnose as having borderline personality disorder, and borderlines are splitters, and what they do is they split families, they split groups, they split um, situations so that people will battle against each other. And I was the child she decided to split off from the rest of the family with a lot of, you know, unnecessary, unjustified cruelty. And um, my father went along with it, unfortunately. So in many ways, bulimia could have kept me alive. If you're going to look at it from an analytical perspective, I could have, you know, in many ways just suicided and said, I'm done with this. This is too hard to keep all the wheels on the bus all the time. Just look right, swim right, play the piano right, right grades, right affect, right, you know, external. Um, Or in some ways, the bulimia gave me an outlet and it kept me alive. But it also kept me as like a walking dead zombie because you become a shell of yourself internally, even if externally you're functioning. And I think that's what separates bulimia from anorexia because bulimics can walk and and, and talk and look normal and um, you, you could never guess what's going on. Anorexics, you can spot at, you know, 10 paces because they're skeletal and they have all the other telltale signs of being you know very very thin but bulimics um can evade detection for many 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 years like i did and yet they're 10 to 12 times more common than anorexic so it's an insidious diabolical horrendous disorder that did nearly cost me my life if i hadn't hit my last bottom at, at 21 22 so that's the backstory. um with just a few details so i think there was an internal battle there was family issues 
And I would throw in I was a little bit of a perfectionist and just uh, very competitive, wanted to be the best, even if the goals were not mine or they were the wrong goals. Mm. It's very interesting that you talked about that, um, the issues which you faced in your home life. What were your coping mechanisms for dealing with those? I loved school. School for me was always a haven. Um, I have always found a great deal of solace in books and maybe that's why I ended up writing books but um, I loved school so school was a haven for me my grand my grandmother I had no cousins no aunts no uncles but I had one grandmother one grandparent and um, and she adored me and made me feel loved and special and I think that was a source of tremendous solace I had friends until I had to hide this disorder, so I began to withdraw from people at about 14, 15. I was a very good swimmer. I got a lot of um, got a lot of props from being a good swimmer, but again, I think the bulimia was a secret lover. I mean, in some ways, eating vast amounts of food and then getting rid of it puts you into a fugue state. You're almost... Um, you're, you're, you're in a walking coma. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, and so that was a form of solace, as bizarre as that might sound. Mm. I also found it really interesting about um, what you've said about dealing with uh, people with BPD, borderline personality disorder. How important do you think someone in a situation which they may find it very difficult to get out of, say, if it's a parent, or say um, someone in in a very difficult marriage. How do you th- how important do you think say setting boundaries is in that type of environment? Well, you know, this is a question I haven't been asked much because I decided only in the last few years to publicly state that I was the daughter of a borderline because I've been even more ashamed of that fact than I was of having an eating disorder. Um, and so it was the last thing I chose to admit publicly. And I felt it was, I owed it to people who would look to me for hope because when my book came out, my, my first book, My Name is Caroline, when it came out in 1988, it was the first book globally ever written by a survivor of bulimia, ever. And so I became a poster child everywhere who gave people hope. It, it, my my I wasn't seeking fame or fortune, but I was seeking um, the idea that people um, should know that at least one person got better. May not be the right path for everyone, but you know, I, I gotten better, and if I got better, you can too. Because that's all anyone with an eating disorder wants is hope. So I gave as much information as I could about my path, but I kept that part to myself because many children of borderlines don't realize how awful um, their lives have been with that as a, tr- as, a, as a feature until they start to have their own children. And I've, I've done a lot of speed reading on BPD and being the daughter of a borderline mother in the last 10, 15 years, only because the literature on it is so new. And I was so ashamed of the fact that my mother didn't love me and that my father's deathbed confession to me was that my mother had never loved me. Um, because it's 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 a wound <laughs> and i i think that once once i disclosed that in positively caroline which was my book about how i stayed in recovery i disclosed it because i felt i had to tell the rest of the story to people and um i think the first thing you have to do is have hope that if you don't have a soft place to fall a family or even a mother who who loves you um 
it's important to realize that you don't have to have that in order to recover and stay in recovery. So the first thing is identifying with, okay, someone else has had this, but you know what? They went on to have a really good life. It doesn't have to hold you back forever. And I think finding the right kind of therapy for borderline uh, situations, and there is dialectical behavior therapy, which I think some people have heard of, some haven't, um, has been a really has been a godsend for me. So it's a really long, convoluted answer, but I hope that it, it addressed the question, which is what do you do when you finally put words to, wow, this wasn't about just being the child of an alcoholic or any of those other things. Being the child of a borderline is a really unique kind of hell because they usually pick one child, not two, not three, one, and they try to steal that child's soul. And many of those children end up as bulimics, apparently. And it's a crazy-making situation to be in because you can't compare stories with your siblings because they're not tr- you know, treated the same way. So you have to come to grips with it in a unique way while also getting help for an eating disorder. So finding someone who, who can give you hope, books, people, um, panels, the Internet is the first step towards dealing with anything. Hope is the keys to the kingdom. Well, <clears throat> I think it's, it's, it's very admirable that, um, as you said, you were, the, you were the first one to uh, to break that ground and break that silence. And um, if, we, if we're talking about My Name is Caroline, when we were doing some research into this, we, we read some of the reviews as we thought it would be important to see how it impacted other people's lives. And some of the reviews that we were picking out, you know, some of them said, uh, this this saved my life, this has changed my life forever, the most important book I've ever read. Um, so it is obviously a Im- really impactful piece of work. Um, so h- how, did, how did the battle with bulimia shape your life, so to say? That's a brilliant question, and I appreciate the way you set it up. Um, I, I want to just... Um just indicate how thankful I am that the book has done the good that it has done because when I wrote it it was just to give people hope what I didn't realize is that my life would change fundamentally and dramatically as a result of the book coming out in 1988 Um, so I've gotten hundreds of thousands of letters from people who, who say they remember they remember where they were when they saw the book in a bookstore or saw an excerpt somewhere. I know it was it was excerpted in New Woman in England, for example. And um, I just, I feel like it gave me a purpose in life because for the first time I realized that happiness wasn't about going to Harvard. It wasn't about playing Beethoven's Concerto Number no. 1 in C Major at 13 on the piano. It wasn't about getting scores. It wasn't about being in the right family or being born with the right amount of money. It was really about what can you do to help other people um, become better versions of themselves. So it was the feedback that I got that illuminated a path for me and it gave me a purpose which was to do something to help other people accomplish hard goals every day and that's been the thread um, from book one to book seven which my most recent one is getting grit because it changed everything and part of that is because I was in a 12-step program which is where I began to meet people who had overcome bulimia in the early 1980s and there was a phrase that I heard that um, you know, it was 
talk about gobsmacked. I mean, the phrase was, you can't keep what you don't give away. And being born in Washington, D.C., fifth generation, my great-grandfather was Abraham Lincoln's watchmaker. And, you know, it's a competitive town. It's a crazy place to be right now. And when I say crazy, capital C, exclamation point. But um, it's a competitive place, and it's all about individual success. And so to suddenly as a college graduate, realized that happiness really came from what can you do for others, not what can you do for yourself. And by the way, it's great you're getting better, Caroline, but what have you done to pull someone else along with you? It changed my perception of what happiness is. It changed my perception of what the good life is. And it changed my life and it changed my soul. And I'm a better person because of all the difficulties I went through. I, I think I have a wonderful life because of the suffering I had. And I'm forever grateful that my path wasn't an easy one, but that it was a hard one because I learned more from that than I did from if everything had gone as well as possible from the get-go. Mm, for sure, for sure. And that definitely builds character and, and as we all to go on to talk about grit, um, I think that something I also found really interesting was that you've been well noted that you were silent about your own struggles too, and that your own husband didn't even know that you were struggling. So I, w I wonder, what would your advice be in terms of communicating to, say, someone that is going through similar struggles? Another great question. So I don't think you should just unzip and disclose to any old person because you can disclose to people who can do more damage because they're either not sympathetic or they're overwhelmed by your pain or they don't know what to say or do. Um, and so you have to choose carefully. And I think this is why it's so important to find people um, who are curious and enthusiastic about helping you to become your best self. And I think we all know intuitively who those people are. Those are people who are not judgmental. They're often people who are wounded healers. They've had their own challenges in life. And so my husband, was the right person to talk to because my parents certainly were not nobody knew I was bulimic until I bottomed out in 1984 and really tearfully disclosed to my husband that I was killing myself one day at a time um, sometimes 15 times a day I was vomiting up the food I was binging on so he too was overwhelmed as is pretty typical but he didn't judge me and he didn't tell me he was going to fix me he said whatever you need to do to get better I'll support you but I really don't know what to do to help you and so that alone was you know permission to go not hate myself but go try to find help which ultimately I found in a 12-step you know support group for compulsive eaters because there wasn't any treatment back then I, I don't know if people can remember this but not only did people not talk about it there really wasn't treatment for it and all we knew was that people died and uh, Karen Carpenter died. This was not something you survived, but I was determined to live. For one reason or another, I felt like I was, I was here for a reason. I didn't know what it was, but I was going to find out. So find somebody who intuitively you know is not a black hole, but is a bright light in your life. And they make you feel hopeful and inspired by virtue of just being there and saying and doing the right things that make you a better person. So... What, in regards to similar issues or addiction, so to speak, would 
you would you attribute a safe judgment free zone as a you know really progressive part of overcoming this good question um i think judgment free at first when you're already so ashamed of something you've been hiding for so long is helpful I think ultimately though you have to be surrounded by people who help to hold you accountable and who don't just give you a free pass and say it's okay um, you can do you can do whatever you want or you know just do your best or whatever at a certain point you have to be held accountable for specific hard Actions, And I think that's where grit became such an important study for me the last 10 years is because you have to do hard things in order to become your best self. We know, we know from research that everybody scans their day at the end of the day for subconsciously what they're proud of. And you're not proud of easy things, you're proud of the things you did that were hard. So at first, a judgment-free zone is a great door to walk through in order to seek healing and support, but ultimately, you have to have your feet held to the fire when necessary by people who love you, but are not afraid to tell you hard things when, when it's necessary, because there are times we should feel guilty or unhappy or um, ashamed. And when that happens, we have to have that group of people we'll listen to as well. Well. And uh, I think that brings us beautifully on to this topic, this topic of grit, which has been, this concept has been so widely talked about. You know, yourself, Angela Duckworth, you've done extremely amazing work into this. It's, it's one of those topics which, which when I read your book, it sort of left me with more questions than answers, which is always a sign of a good book. <laughs> so... <laughs> I just want to know, so could you just give our audience some context into what we know about grit to this point? Sure, sure. Great question. Um, so Angela Duckworth is, is a friend of mine, and I was at the University of Pennsylvania when she was doing this doctoral research um, into what we now know as grit. So I was getting a master's degree in applied positive psychology, which I know is a big, big deal around the world now, particularly in the United Kingdom, where there's some great training programs. But um, I was in the first class of 34 people studying it in 2005, which was when Angela was starting to come up with these findings, first at West Point and then in Teach for America, uh, special forces training, inner cities, you know, school children, men in marriage, where she began to find that this very simple grid scale, which started as 20 questions and then narrowed down to about 12 or even 10 at times, really tried to discern what is it that allows some people to get to the finish line of their own hard goals. Um, when other people who have a lot of promise or talent or resources can't get to the finish line. And what, what we now know is that this quality of grit, which she originally defined as passion and perseverance in pursuit of long-term goals, we now know that that is an X factor for success in life. That when you have goals that are meaningful to you, not necessarily other people, but you have a heart's desire to take that risk, to go in that direction, to do that hard thing, there is this X factor that is above and beyond being conscientious or disciplined or self-regulated or even ambitious. It's a complicated mixture of all of those qualities that have to come together in order for somebody to do something hard 
over a long period of time because resilience is about short-term getting up over and over. Grit is about a long-term goal. So as Angela was doing her work, and I had written Creating Your Best Life, which came out uh, in 2008, early 2009, what I realized is I studied goal-setting theory and wrote the first book on goal-setting theory and its connection to happiness. What I realized was that if the happiest people wake up to hard goals every day, you better have this X factor. This grit thing is the most important quality you can have if you're going to have hard goals. So as I studied it and studied it and unpacked it, I did something that Angela did not do because she does research and I work with human beings. As an executive coach, as a a speaker, as a teacher, what I do is I unpack grit and I say, okay, wherever you're starting with this hard goal, because a lot of people have hard goals lurking in the back of their minds, whether they articulate them or not. Maybe they're afraid to articulate them or take risks or they need permission to take those risks. What they don't always have is the combination of patience and perseverance and passion and self-regulation and teamwork and the ability to you know, be in relationship with other people. I began to unpack what are the discrete qualities that we need to cultivate in order to become authentically gritty. And so one more piece I'll add before we, you know, dig into any of that, and that is what I realized that's different from Angela's work is that there are two kinds of grit, and one is good grit and one is bad grit. And my umbrella term for good grit is authentic grit. And so while it's still about passion and perseverance in pursuit of long-term goals, what I realized as I worked with thousands of people around the world is that It's not enough for an individual to become gritty. Somehow in that process, you have to inspire other people to be that as well. And that goes right back to me overcoming my eating disorder, which was, you know, you can't keep what you don't give away. I don't believe grit is a good force for good in a society societal way unless other people are uplifted and inspired by witnessing it or hearing about it. And so Angela's definition leaves a lot of people hanging with, well, wait a minute, Adolf Hitler was gritty, um, so is grit good? And so I believe there's good grit and bad grit, and there's stupid grit, which is, you know, not being able to give up on a goal even when its time has passed, or faux grit, which we have an epidemic of people faking accomplishments in order to get the admiration, or even selfie grit, you know, you do hard things, but you have to tell everyone and broadcast it all the time. And so let me just pause there and say that's how I got here. And it all does go right back to my first book and cultivating the right kind of grit in order to get better and share the message with other people. As you were speaking then, I got I got wondering because of what you said about needing to give that grit away and, and you can't keep what you don't give away. And it reminded me, I read a book once based around a 12-step program about recovery and they talked about the importance of of helping others overcome it before you complete the program yourself and i wanted to ask can you recall any of your first experiences with helping people discover grit oh yeah i mean just so many stories and i'm so humbled by the fact that i get to uh, be part of it because sometimes all anybody wants to do is talk to me and say did you really overcome it are you sure you know do you ever have moments where you um 
you know, think about food or you're worried that you can't get through a meal. And if you just are honest, you know, no, it doesn't hang over my head like the sword of Damocles. Sometimes that hope is all anyone needs um, to develop um, pieces of grit because hope is a part of grit. And um, so I've been able to be that person in that dialogue with hundreds if not thousands of people by email by phone in person in audiences whatever um i've also um given people you know permission to get up after they've you know fallen down or had a slip or had a relapse and say that's okay i did that too today's a new day um and so those are just so many people that and again it's about being hope not being judgmental um helping them to find solutions that fit their situation their life and so um, in a million different ways, I think I've been privileged to be a part of conversations where all kinds of just authentic data is exchanged where people have hope. It really comes down to hope. If people have hope, they can do the damnedest things. Mm. Is there an argument uh, for, say, uh, a nature versus nurture type in regards to grit? Are some people born with more grit, or is this something which is developed, or is there a case of uh, both and rather than either or? Yeah, you know, I didn't want to write Getting Grit if it was a hardwired quality, because then it was a it was a pointless book. It was like you know those those people over there, those Olympians, they're uh, uh, you know they're born with it, and all you can do is dream about it. So. Um, this this goes back to learning about positive psychology, which is half of our happiness is hardwired, and and that's a fact. You know, half of our ability to be optimistic or self-regulated or, um, or you know, hopeful or zestful, those things are hard hardwired, but it's only half of our ability to flourish emotionally. The other half is completely volitional, and it's up to what we choose to think about who we choose to spend time with, and what our behaviors are. The same is true for grit. So Angela found that half of our ability to be gritty is hardwired. Um, and that, again, goes back to self-regulation. You know, there are people with attention hyperactivity disorder. Um, they're more impulsive. That's hardwired. You have to be, and I have that, actually. So you have to overcome the ability to be, you know, impulsive. You have to learn to delay gratification, which has only gotten harder with smartphones, with, you know, the distraction and the inability to focus has made it even harder for people to overcome addiction. So you can learn those qualities, though. So, so the answer to your question is there is some nature involved but there's a whole lot of self-nurture and and being around people who give you hope and inspire you to do hard things that is learnable and that's why I wanted to write the book because I wanted people to know you could cultivate grit because I I had a Harvard magna cum laude education and I couldn't overcome my eating disorder because I couldn't say no to myself when the chips were down I had to cultivate those qualities in order to succeed at the hardest goal in my life and so I had some inborn qualities that allowed me to succeed at external things but I had to cultivate these internal qualities in addition to those qualities in order to achieve the hardest of hard goals are there any like really practical steps that someone could take to to start developing this idea of grit now or is there a case of these things they build up over time through as you said self-regulation uh, managing oneself or do you have any tips that someone could use as as yeah, yeah. yeah. 
it, it, it's the both and, you know. Um, yes, there are things you can start doing immediately, and I think it's an you know, iterative process. It builds up over time. It's cumulative. So I think one of the most important things I ask people is, what will you regret not pursuing? Um, if you're looking back on your life and there's something or some things that you long to attempt that are hard, but you don't believe you have what it takes. So I think the first thing is identifying what are you passionate about? What are the things that you're going to regret? So you have to at least have some sense of that. You also, people do need to learn how to put smartphones down and delay gratification. Um, an interesting study showed that human beings can't focus as long as goldfish anymore. So goldfish can maintain eye contact for, you know, eight seconds, and humans can only do it for seven. They can't hold a pose and freeze tag, for example, as long as, you know, kids did in the 60s. So you can begin to delay gratification, put the phone down, learn how to focus and, and, and have patience. So if you can't sit with yourself and do hard things, then you'll never develop grit because the easy rewards and the low-hanging fruit are not a piece of what grit is made of. Grit is made of doing hard things, often by yourself, for long periods of time. So if you can't maintain focus, you can't be that person. So self-regulation and patience are called qualities you can begin to cultivate today. And if you begin to cultivate them, they get deeper and they become habitual. So it's both and. One idea that we found ourselves absorbed in uh, by uh, in your TED talk was the comparison you made between the self-esteem movement and your neighborhood park. Um, yeah. Do you think modern society is set up in a way that makes getting grit even harder? Oh my gosh. Do you have an hour? <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I can be I can be severely criticized for this, but this is why I wrote evidence. I write evidence based books. This is not anecdotal. This is not just my opinion. The research shows that we have really dumbed down society in a lot of ways. Certainly in the United States, but I've been able to go around the world and other countries and see that it's very similar. Whether you're in New Zealand or in Japan, or uh, I've been in England, I've been in Scotland. I mean, I've been in a lot of places where a lot of parents are complaining about the same thing, which is my child is being rewarded for doing little to no work. They're being told they're winners and they're awesome, even when they haven't done anything necessarily difficult um, to achieve that award, that compliment. And so Carol Dweck has a body of work out of Stanford University on fixed and growth mindset. And one of the things we know is that when children are overpraised, which was what we were told as parents to do during the self-esteem generation parenting movement, where if you praise your children, they'll be happy. And if they're happy, they'll work hard and they'll be successful. And that's all been found to be completely garbage because it created narcissists and sociopaths on average, not people who, who worked hard and overcame obstacles. So when you take all of these challenges, starting with the neighborhood parks, which have been dumbed down to be literally nothing, it's like mounds of rounded plastic forms where there's no thrill. Kids aren't growing up with the risk-taking and the thrill of going on a swing anymore, climbing trees. Um, now, I'm generalizing, but generally this is what we've seen, certainly in the United States. So with dumbed-down playgrounds, when you spun it forward, what sociologists and psychologists were saying are kids are not climbing trees. They're not entertained by parks anymore because there's nothing thrilling there. They're not falling and skinning their knees. 
boys. They're being, you know, shepherded around by nannies and watchful parents who don't let them even have time alone. And then you get into the school system and it's great inflation, um, comfort animals, uh, I, I mean, safe spaces. And then they go into the working world and they get a performance review and they can't handle it if they're told they just met expectations and did not exceed them. So I think there's been this pendulum that swung so far that it had to correct and the correction has started um and so i do know from the research i looked at for many many years that this is a real problem that isn't that's that's been seen in a lot of countries and now we have to go back to and i know in in um other countries, Germany, England, there's dangerous playgrounds that are coming back where kids can go take risks and explore and build a teepee and, you know, play with things that are a little bit dangerous because they might get some germs and they might learn how to be more careful. And those are all good corrections that we're seeing in society now. What do you think the the long-term... Uh implications would be say for parents leaders teachers that they they've changed their attitudes towards say protecting children's feelings by essentially denouncing competitive aspects of life until they actually face into you know um until they actually face into the 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 way in which society is in a a capitalist environment which is essentially capital which is competitive what do you think the long-term implications would be on society well i know what the long-term implications are because i looked at this and one of them is people stopped founding companies at the same pace so entrepreneurism um declined in our country by nine percent so as people who hadn't learned to take risks and were always bubble wrapped and you know they were called all kinds of things teacups and snowflakes um, with lawnmower parents and helicopter parents they stopped taking risks because they didn't know or believe in their capacity for hard work because they'd never been asked to do it Um, and they weren't accustomed to taking risks and finding out that maybe they weren't as good at something as they thought they were or that they had failed. What would they do if they failed? So if you spin it forward, what you see are people who are not taking risks, they're playing it safe, Um, and then they want their children to have everything um, without any pain. So I don't know if you've heard about what's happened here with the college cheating scandal and these stars, these wealthy parents, bribing coaches to let their children into University of Southern California, Harvard, um, Wake Forest, other universities, because what they do is they basically communicate to their children, I don't believe you have what it takes to get into this university, so we're going to cheat your way in. And when you go through life cheating and finding shortcuts, um, you never really learn what you're made of. And we have a president in this country who is our whiner-in-chief. It's always about things aren't fair, and, you know, he wants things to come to him easily. But it's the whininess that's really um, been so damaging for the culture here, is if you don't get what you want, you can whine and whine and say it's not fair instead of saying, I'll do better next time, or I deserve responsibility for what happened here. So you end up not having a flourishing life. We know 
that if you don't go through three to seven extremely significant setbacks in the course of a lifetime, you'll never really be fulfilled or flourish because you're never going to know what you're made of, nor will you ever appreciate the good times when they occur because you have nothing to compare them to. Yeah, um, it's really interesting what you said but there, I mean, about the president and about the way society is. What do you think about um, how one could, say, try to overcome that that victim mindset, if you will? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you, you, you have to raise your children and, you know, comport yourself in such a way that you're a role model for taking responsibility for what happens. If children grow up seeing parents or people or role models around them, taking risks, doing hard things, but taking responsibility when they don't work out, they begin to see um, that you can go out of your comfort zone, you can uh, do hard things, and you can learn from them while taking responsibility for it um, and not be ashamed of it. Um, and when you do that, in, in a society, you have people who are gradually improving and getting better and becoming their their own best selves instead of being people who simply aren't adults i don't know how else to say it i mean there are universities in the united states that are actually teaching courses called adulting how to be an adult and it's horrifying on the face of it that there's a generation that didn't grow up taking responsibility, using credit cards, putting things on credit cards, declaring bankruptcy so they don't have to take responsibility for overspending. Um, and yet that's where we are, is that if you haven't seen enough of it coming from role models or, or public figures or even your parents, then where are you going to learn it? Well, I guess you have to learn it in a class called adulting in college. <laughs> I, actually, I absolutely love what you're talking about by here. I mean... I remember when I was very young, I read uh, The Six Pills of Self-Esteem by uh, Dr. Nathaniel Brandon. And um, I just remember him breaking it down into the self-efficacy, the self-respect. And I, and I agree. I mean, it does seem as if that self-efficacy, it seems like it's on a decline where people just don't believe that they can take these, these the, the, the same challenges. They're not as... as challenge inclined i personally believed as as i imagine people once were and um you know and, and it really uh you know for sure it, it you know it, your 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 points they are really interesting and and really really high uh sense of um of theories here to really think about and to try to break down i wonder why you think um you know what we could do say as a society that will help create a generation with higher efficacies and with a future generation that are more likely to stick with things when they get difficult, that are not going to take that victim mentality and say that, you know, life is always happening against me. Oh, boy. Well, I think, it, you know, we all bear some responsibility because I, I've raised three millennial children myself with my husband and I watched culture changing around them so I can't fault the millennials and say this is all their fault they don't work hard they're whiners everybody got a trophy I think it starts with the adults and what are you doing in your own backyard in your own home in your own society on the sports teams where you coach what are you doing to reward hard work as opposed to just showing up and so I think just about everybody can play a role in 
any variety of this. And, and one is rewarding people who do hard work. Maybe they don't win, but they go out of their comfort zone to see what they're made of. So rewarding people who take risks. And maybe they, they don't get as far as they they you know want to go, but they've done something hard and built up their own confidence and courage. Um, I think another thing that we don't do well, and um, some of this is because there's such an airbrushed, curated world out there on Instagram and Facebook where people only put the things they're proud of um, and, you know, these airbrushed faces. And, you know, Instagram is the social media channel that does the most damage to young girls because there's this impossible standard of beauty um, that's out there and they start hating their bodies. And this is why eating disorders and anxiety and depression are skyrocketing, is there's too many things to live up to, and it's this lack of reality out there. I think we have to share our stories of failure. And if we don't share our stories of failure with our friends, with our family, with our children, they don't learn that the people around them who they might believe have never had a hard day in their lives, they don't learn that they've had to develop coping mechanisms, that they too have suffered. Um, Because one of the things we know is that resilient people grow up hearing stories of overcoming. The culture of storytelling that you grow up with informs what you believe is possible in the world. And if it's only about the good things, there's nothing to learn from that. Because you can't unpack that and see where you can get better. What you have to unpack is if things didn't go well, what do I have to do? What do I have to take responsibility for so that the outcome is different next time? So I think that's one of the ways to do it. And I think we have to get kids off screens. One of the things I'm really concerned about is that the word awesome gets tossed around a lot here. It's like devalued currency. Everybody's awesome. So it's meaningless. And yet the word awe and the quality of awe is at the heart of grit, authentic grit, because when you witness or hear of somebody doing something heroic or hard or in the interests of uh, helping somebody else, that's what awe is about. And when you witness awe, you become a better human being. And that always involves doing something outside of your comfort zone. And I think we saw all last week at um, the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, where all these people heroically rushed in to try to save this structure, not for themselves, but because it meant something to so many other people. That was awesome. When you hear of a story of, uh, you know, people competing in the Olympics from countries where they're covered with hijabs and women can't even work out without having men throwing rocks at them. That's awesome. We don't see anything awesome on a screen. Awesome is out there in nature, in the world. We need to get off screens so that people can actually witness interpersonal behavior that makes them better. Mm. And, and you really practice what you preach by it because we love the example that you gave in your TED talk of when you brought back the, um, the, the, the record board, the record board <laughs> at, your, at your local swimming pool. Could you, oh. could you t- share that story? Oh, happily, I'll share that story. So um, we joined a little swim club just outside of Washington, D.C., because summer swimming is a really big deal in the United States, particularly in some areas. And, um, you know, a lot of Olympians have come from where I live, like Katie Ledecky and, you know, world champion. 
things like that. So summer swimming is an equal opportunity place where kids get to have good, clean fun and compete. So we joined this little club. Um, not a fancy club. And the first thing my husband and I were told was, do you have any idea what swimmers came from this little club, like in the 80s and 90s? And we said, no. And they gave us the names of these world champions and Olympic gold medalists. And my husband and I, who were both competitive athletes growing up, we looked around and said, well, where's the record board? Um, we want to see how fast those kids were when they were 8 and 10 and 12 and 14. Just, you know, how awesome were they? And this mother looked at us dead on and said, oh, we hit the record board. We thought it would discourage the children and make them not want to try. And I was so taken aback that I decided to do something about it when they gave me a little bit of power, which they did. They made me an A rep for the team. And uh, I had, you know, a very good, my oldest son was a nationally ranked swimmer. So, uh, you know, they, they took me seriously as a swimming mother. And I had the biggest record board ever made created in Texas for this little summer swim team. And I embedded pictures of these three champions. And I got every record ever done in that pool. And then I held what was called a breakfast of champions. And I invited these three men back to our little pool. And, um, and kids flock there because they wanted to see and touch champions. Kids want to know what is elite. And so this one boy named Ben stared at that record board for two years until he came to me right before he was going to leave for college. And he said, Mrs. Miller, I think I can get one of those records. And he pointed to it. It was the 100-meter backstroke. And it was held by one of the three superstars in, in you know, the pantheon of our swim team. And I said, okay, Ben, I'm going to be the announcer Saturday. I'll be happy to tell the crowd that you're going for this record, and everyone will cheer for you. When that Saturday came, I played the Rocky music. The place was lit up with screaming and stomping and both teams cheering. Why? We love to see people put it on the line. We love to see what we're made of, and we love to see other people throw down the gauntlet and say, God, let's see what I'm made of. That kid swam out of his mind. His arms moved faster than I've ever seen them move, and after four lengths of backstroke, when his hand hit the, hit the wall, the place went silent. You could hear a pin drop. And all seven timers leaned in and compared their watches, and then they looked at the crowd and they screamed, he got it. And he did. He broke it by a tenth of a second. And what was so remarkable to me, above and beyond the fact that kids crave record boards, we all want to know, how do you become elite? When we remove those standards, nobody has any idea what they have to do to be excellent. I found more kids flocking around the record board and more records started to be broken. So it circles back to why take away a record board with this mistaken idea that it'll make people feel bad if they see other people who are good at something. It actually inspires better performance. And for me, it was just the epitome of what has happened to our society when valedictorians are being erased out of high school classes because it makes other kids feel bad. Why are we taking record boards down? Because it might discourage children. On the contrary, I kept seeing when you bring standards back, people rise to the occasion and get better. And that's where we need to go as a society and as a world. Oh, I, I absolutely love that story and I can completely testify to it, pretty much relate to it exactly. Um, 
I ended up becoming um, a swimmer for my country and represented my country. And when I was younger, I remember my my first swimming club and the record board. Um, I, rem- I I can I can literally picture exactly how I looked when I was ten years old. And I remember before and after every practice, people would study it. They, they you. People would be able to tell you who holds what record, exactly what time, how many tenths of a second, and it, it almost became an obsession to to the ch- to the children, and and it definitely did um, become an obsession to me. And I, and I remember becoming I wanted my name on that board w- with those people, and I, I think th- I think that is is spot on, and um, I can really testify to that one. So uh, I love that story. Um, so what, what I wanted to talk about now, I wanted to f- flip the question, but we talked about the positives of grit and and um, all these beautiful things. I wanted to ask you, is there such a thing or do you believe in such a thing as a dark side of grit? Oh, yeah. Um, and, and this is, again, where I think I separated myself from Angela Duckworth is because what I realized in working with people for many years over how to accomplish their hard goals is that you can take grit too far or other people can take grit too far. So there are three kinds of bad grit that I did identify. The most obvious one is what I call stupid grit. And that's like a mountaineer with summit fever. And they see the top of the mountain, and they're so fixated on getting to the top of the mountain that they ignore the warnings of the Sherpas and the other climbers and the weather forecasts. And for them, it's all about winning. But that's not what grit is about. Grit is not about hurting yourself or other people in the process of achieving a hard goal. And and the key determinant in not having stupid grit is humility. I kept finding over and over the role humility plays in having good grit because there are two kinds of humility. One is social humility where you don't have to be the star of every situation, every star. You can allow the light to shine on other people. Um, and, and intellectual humility, admitting that you don't know everything. Um, and so the people who can't ask for feedback from outsiders or a board of directors, essentially, even a personal board of directors, and say, have I gone too far? Am I missing signs that I need to pivot with my product, with my company, with my life, with my mountain climb? Those people um, are the ones who end up having stupid grit, and they hurt themselves or other people. In in scuba diving, it's called the rapture of the deep. You get nitrogen narcosis, and you literally uh, are drunk on oxygen as you descend deeper and deeper, and you lose all bearings. You might even take your mask off. So you can see it in both directions. And then there's faux grit. And, And faux grit, for me, is so egregious. I can't stand it because, for example... The the highest military honor you can win in the United States is called the Medal of Honor, and it's given out to very few people, and it's for intrepidity and gallantry, under fire often, um, serving your fellow man. But you do something so heroic that it's often awarded posthumously. So there's only about 77 living Medal of Honor winners, but... What's so astonishing to me is that there's a commission in the U.S. government that was set up to ferret out people who buy it on on eBay, and they go to flea markets and they buy it, and they wear it. They wear it in parades, or they tell people they earned it, or they put it on their resume. I mean, for me, that's faux grit, where you want other people to admire you, ostensibly for doing this hard thing, but you don't have what it takes 
you're not willing to do the hard work, you're not willing to do the research to get your PhD, you want to take a shortcut um, to get that that honor academically, physically, whatever it is. But that's 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 faux grit, and I honestly can't stand it because what they do is they take away the value of actually doing that hard thing from other people who suffered and got there. The third kind of bad grit is what I call um, selfie grit. And one of my candidates for selfie grit is the Navy SEAL who decided, and he, you know, obviously to just be a special forces operator, you have to be. Uh, uh, um, among the most elite warriors of you know of your time so he's a navy seal but he decided to break the code of the quiet professionals and give an interview and say i saw i shot osama bin laden it was me i shot him i deserve all the glory when in fact you know it's a special forces team and so to me that just says everything about our culture where if you do something hard you have to take a bow you have to Take a selfie. You have to tell other people. Again, it's a lack of humility. The unwillingness to do something unless you're going to be rewarded for it by other people giving you Facebook likes. So I am appalled by the role that screens and social media have played in appropriate or, or kind of expanding this goal that people have to look tougher than they really are. So... Anyway, or they are tough, but they want everyone to admire them. So anyway, I think we need to get back to this quiet selflessness, this humility, this Protestant work ethic, um, this long-term ability to focus and not just have to change jobs or change passions every few years. We need to get back to that because that's where innovative breakthroughs occur. That's how we put a man on the moon. All good things come from cultivating grit, and, uh, and it has to be the right kind of grit. I think a good place to to take this conversation after an answer like that would be what we could do in terms of goal setting because I know that you are a big proponent of of that art and I just wondered what your sort of process would be in terms of goal setting. Wow, well I wrote a whole book about that. So um I, uh, Creating Your Best Life is my fifth book. So that came out in 2008-2009 and um, what what astonished me about that book coming out was that it was the first evidence-based goal-setting book ever published. So what that means is that until my book came out, every goal-setting book, Brian Tracy, Zig Ziglar, Law of Attraction, they were all filled with snake oil and anecdotes, and none of it really involved hard work based on evidence. And so there is a process for setting, pursuing, and achieving goals with a scientific background, and I start with goal-setting theory. And goal-setting theory is Locke and Latham's work. And what, what they found after hundreds of validated studies is that goals can be separated into two buckets, essentially, performance goals and learning goals. And I'm simplifying this dramatically. But you have to first start by knowing what kind of goal are you pursuing and what are the metrics for knowing that you're actually making progress or not. Um, the best outcomes always come from having challenging and specific goals, whether it's learning or performance. So you have to start with knowing a goal-setting process, but then actually having metrics and accountability to continue to move forward. So that's that's one thing right there. So you have to do hard things to build self-efficacy and have um, positive outcomes. But there's a whole 
group of other things we could get into and we probably don't have time accountability um you have to be able to take risks you have to build your emotional flourishing because we know from really great research that all success in life is preceded by being happy first so in order to succeed at any goal in any domain of life you have to actually up your well-being one way or another and there's a, a variety of positive interventions that exist to do this um, and that have been studied, exercise, journaling, meditation, using your character strengths, altruism, gratitude, all of these have been found to amplify one's state of well-being. Because when you up that, you have the ingredients that allow you to persist and be hopeful as you do hard things. So that's that's just part of it. So I, I think it's probably better to point people to my book Um or even to, you know, I have online classes that are going to be launching later this year that people could sign up for on my newsletter. So anyway, there's, it, it, it's a complicated topic, and I wish I could do it justice in a minute or two, but I can't. But those are the broad brush strokes of you have to set goals the right way or don't bother doing it at all. For sure. And uh, we, will, we will link um, all of your books in the description. Something I saw this morning on your Instagram story was that you were up very early working out. I think yeah. you'd said that you got up at 10 past four. Do you have a set of morning rituals or routines that, that have helped you? Yeah. Boy, you did your homework, didn't you? Okay, <laughs> well, yes. Um, one of the things that we find about people who do hard things during the day is they often start the day with a physical win. They do something hard. Um, and so um, I also am high in the quality of zest, which means that exercise is a really natural outlet for me. And my, my great uncles went one, two in the Olympics in 1912. So athleticism and the um, kind of the benefits that come from exercising chemically and every other way really work for me. They may not work for everybody, but um, my morning routine is often to get up and to swim at American University here in Washington, D.C. And I have a master's team, and one thing we know is that you can drill down most well-being to the phrase other people matter because the happiest people tend to relationships and they cultivate them like a garden. And so if I were doing this in a solitary way, I may not get as much bang for the buck, but if I start my day with friends, with laughter, with hard work, the rest of the day is pretty good. <laughs> so um, that's what I do many days of the week, but then I have like martial arts training, which I think is also a tremendous thing for all women in particular to learn because it's the number one way to um, avoid sexual assault is to have some martial arts training so or self-defense training. So I do that as well, and I think there's a lot of discipline and self-regulation that comes from uh, martial arts training for boys and girls, but women in particular. We're dealing with a whole Me Too epidemic Women need to know how to walk and talk and use their bodies in a way where they communicate that they respect their bodies and they can defend themselves if necessary. Love it. And our listeners will, um, will be grateful for that. And uh, another question that we always ask our guests and we could never finish an, uh, an episode without asking is, um, what is there any books that you have read in your time that have had the greatest impact on your life? Oh, I love that question. Um, 
Yeah, actually, um, Psycho-Cybernetics by Dr. Maxwell Maltz. I read that at 15 at the encouragement of one of my swim coaches, and it spoke to the power of the mind, um, and what you believe is often what you can achieve, and, I, and it really hit me at a, a very formative age. I also love the book Little Women by Louisa May Alcott, and I think early on I identified with a character, uh, Joe, who just simply, you know, overcame things and just kept going. So I think that that was part of the seeds of, of me overcoming my eating disorder. So that's a ch- really a childhood book and a, and a psychology book. Um, and there there's so many others, but right now I read a lot of research because I'm always looking for the so what in research because um, research is research until somebody says, what can I do with it? And I'm always looking for the so what. And if I had to answer a different question, it would be what podcasts do you listen to? Because I find that podcasts are one of the best ways I can add really valuable learning to my life while doing any variety of other things. Um, And so I listen to the psychology podcast with Scott Barry Kaufman. That's just one. Um, Finding Mastery by Michael Gervais is another one. And, uh, and, and then there's several others, but I, I just think that there's a lot you can learn. I'll say one more book that I'm actually reading, rereading, and reading again, and that's The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis about Danny Kahneman and Amon, Amos uh, Tversky, two of the greatest psychologists of the 20th century who won the Nobel Prize um, for their work in economic theory, um, combining psychology. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant book. And there's a, ta- a takeaway on every page. So I'm listening to it and reading it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And and we know that we're very short on time, so we won't take up much more of your time. But we've just got one question by you, which has been sent in. And the question is, is that you've obviously achieved a lot. Uh, you are also female, if I may make that observation. <laughs> so what what would your advice be to young females that are looking to make an impact and say uh break through that quote-unquote glass ceiling oh wow okay this is where i'm doing a lot of global work right now so this is not going to be a short answer my answer is that women have to learn to stop shooting at other women um because one of the things we know is that the tall poppy syndrome really hurts women and that when women dare to succeed or be ambition or even be proud be ambitious or be proud of something they've accomplished the number one detractors of those women are their friends and often their family members and so so there's a silencing and a punishing that goes on um and i think what we have to grow we have to teach women as they grow up and they have to see adult women in their lives doing it is to amplify the accomplishments of other women women have to amplify and support the accomplishments of other women because we know that women don't network effectively the same way men do they do it by uh interacting with and amplifying other successful women and women you know, who believe in them as well. One other thing I want to say about that is women or girls are primed very young by what's called the Disney rule. And I just ran across this recently. And what the Disney rule is, is that when illustrators are drawing pictures of princesses on the cover of like a DVD or in a movie, the Disney rule says that those princesses 
cannot look in the same direction. They have to look in opposite directions because what they basically believe is there can only be one princess per environment. And so if they're looking in opposite directions, the, the, the viewer believes they're in different environments. And so we have to, you know, cultivate these, this idea among girls as they grow up that there can be two princesses in a room. You can have three princesses in a room, but we have to stop believing in scarcity theory, which is only one woman at a table, one princess in a room. And the only way we're going to do that is if we create a culture in which women support and uplift other women's successes, not just causes like um, suffrage, you know, suffragism, getting the vote, Planned Parenthood. Passion is not enough. Shared causes. It's about how do women uplift and support other women's individual unique goals, not just a common cause, because that's where women are falling down. And historically, I cannot find enough examples of when women have come together to support each other's unique individual goals. When girls grow up, they have to become part of a tribe where that is the norm, not the exception. And if they do that, there'll be more seats at the table of power as they grow up. That's an absolutely beautiful answer. And um, our last question for you um, may be quite a difficult one for you to answer, given the plethora of experiences you've had, the back catalogue of work you've produced on complex ideas. So we apologize if it's a if it's a tough one to answer. But we ask all our guests, if you could distill your life lessons up until this point into one short impactful message or slogan what would your message be you can't keep what you don't give away (laughs) it just comes back over and over to overcoming my eating disorder that that has been the touchstone of everything good that's ever happened in my life and it wasn't just me overcoming it it was who else did you help and that has informed every fiber of my being since the age of 22 because i realized that's where real joy was is doing hard things but helping other people do hard things too caroline this has been an absolute pleasure your knowledge of case studies of research of of the detail in which you go to it's just been an incredible episode and so valuable We can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Oh, it's one of the best interviews I've ever done. Thank you for um, asking me. I really appreciate it.